Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Politics is a field that is so ripe for for comedy, whether it's uh, skewering or satirising or just standing back in amazement going, I don't understand how these people operate. I'm joined in the studio by writer-performer Melissa McGlensky, whose show The Briefing is on as part of the Melbourne International Comedy Festival from the 10th to the 23rd of April at Campari House in Hardware Lane in the city. Melissa, welcome to Triple R. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Now, people will immediately hear your accent and go, oh, an American, an American talking politics. That's kind of like could be contentious. So you moved here from California and noticed that what kind of Australians love talking about American politics, but not their own. Yeah, I grew up in California. I moved here in 2016 and have kind of been back and forth since 2016 between here and Chicago and here in New York. Um, and 2019, I made the permanent move here. And yeah, that, that whole period was a very political time. And I definitely found myself the object of fascination at times um, from Australians. Fascination and what, some derision as well, given Absolutely. that kind of uh, <laughs> yeah. that Trump was in the president at the time. Yeah, there was a lot of derision, which I found fascinating with ScoMo in power over here, as I call him Little Trump. But, um, you know, things have changed a lot since then. And that's the thing. My show reflects that. It's a show that's growing and changing and evolving with the political landscape. Now, the the title of the show, The Briefing, gives us a, a real sense of what the show is. You are presenting uh, what is very familiar to any uh, viewer of uh, daily news broadcasts, uh, the, the idea of the media briefing, that figure who stands at a podium, whether with Australian flags or American flags behind them, mm-hmm. answering questions from journalists and bringing them up to speed about the issue of the day. Now, what we saw under Trump was the, uh, the briefing evolving into some weird, fantastical uh, kind of world in which truth no longer seemed to matter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was very inspired by that. The idea of oppressor, which is one of the most maybe boring stock standard things, becoming this strange twilight zone where facts are bent and, you know, Sarah Huckabee Sanders really spent most of her time sparring with press (laughs) rather than briefing them. And that really inspired me and made me think about the press room as a theater space um, because it was quite theatrical. And, you know, then here in Australia during lockdown, it also became this kind of theatrical space where everyone would tune in, right, and we were watching and with bated breath. And I decided to kind of transform my show into a press room where the audience is treated as a hostile press corps and I brief them. Essentially. So it's an interactive show in that regard, because if the audience sit there quietly, not saying anything, you don't have much of a show. No, and in fact, that's my worst nightmare. I hate a quiet, respectful audience. (laughs) I am putting the call out. I want all hecklers. I want the rowdy people, the political nerds who have something to say. I want them to come to my show. And I want them to batter me with questions. That's what it's all about. How much of your show is pre-prepared and scripted in terms of having, I don't know, multiple different answers that you can drop in at a particular moment? 
Hmm, it, that's complicated to answer because I am first and foremost an improviser. I came to comedy through improv and then I pivoted sort of to stand up and sketch and other things. Um, I'm always ready to pivot on anything. So there is a script. There are certain portions of the show where I know it'll be looser and that there'll be more audience engagement. But I would say it's probably like a maybe 65, 70% scripted and the rest is really off the cuff based on what the audience is giving me. Okay. Uh, the old, I read a review of a, your season at Melbourne Fringe last year in which audience members were given little slips of paper with notes on them as they entered the room. So mm -hmm. is that a deliberate uh, kind of opportunity to, to make sure that there are some questions flowing to begin with before the audience warm up and, and really get into character themselves? Yeah, I tried to gear the whole show towards this, like, crescendo of interaction. So we start with the lowest, most non-threatening interaction, which is writing something from your seat. What they're writing is actually fake Trump tweets. So they get to write something that sounds like Trump might have tweeted it, and then I have to draw it from a bowl and kind of give it the, the huck spin on the fly. And then we work our way up to the more traditionally, quote unquote, scary for audience members who are shy kinds of interaction. Like there's supplying me with a word, there's group responses to questions, and then ultimately it's just like I let it loose and we do a free-range Q&answer session back and forth. I'm curious to know what the germ for this idea of for a show was because the idea of bringing a media briefing to life doesn't necessarily sound innately comedic. It mm. could be quite dry. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely could. Um, look, I've always been a politics nerd, a little bit of a politics junkie, whether that's Australian or US politics, really global politics. And so I knew I wanted to do something along that vein. And it kind of fell into my lap when someone told me that I looked a little bit like Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Um, but like, with a soul was the, <laughs> was the phrasing used. Um, and I decided to lean into that. This was like my SNL moment, right? If I was on SNL, I would have been cast as her. And for me, there's so much that is ripe for mockery within these little niche subgroups. And the niche subgroup of U.S. politics is so filled with hilarity. I just had to go there. Yeah. Now, Obviously, uh, Australians are very happy to laugh at American politics. Are they equally as happy to laugh at Australian politics? Because sometimes I see that defensive attitude develop when people are going, oh, no, it's fine to mock them, but hold on, you can't talk about our politicians like that. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, I've found a different reaction everywhere I've gone. I just got back from Adelaide. They were quite ready there to laugh at themselves. Melbourne fringe audiences were quite ready to laugh at themselves, but not as much at the, like, really dark things. Um, and I'm not pulling any punches here. So we're, we're going to get into it. We're going to talk guns. We're going to talk abortion. We're going to talk offshore detention camps. So people do have to come to it with a sense that, you know, this is cathartic and this is a little bit of gallows humor. Um, but they do have to be willing to laugh at their own nation as much as mine, although we will laugh at mine a little bit more. <laughs> <laughs> Which begs the question, why is Sarah Huckabee Sanders talking about Australian politics? If you're staying in character for the whole show, why is she commenting on offshore detention? Why is she commenting on the Labor Party's, oh, we want to have uh, a, a green policy on one hand, but we're going to commit to opening more power stations and coal mines mm. with the other? Well, she's talking about offshore detention camps because she loves them. She thinks it's a great idea. She wants to import and maybe use on Fire Island in New York. Um, but she 
is here because she's on a global propaganda tour. A little bit of a spoiler for the show. I am convinced she is the future first female president of the United States of America. There's a lot of evidence that she is the rising star on the right at the moment. She recently did the rebuttal to the State of the Union. She's the only female governor in the entire nation and the youngest governor in the entire nation. So she is the future of the right. And I think I really uh, bring that home in the show and talk about why she's relevant and why she's unfortunately not going anywhere anytime soon. That's slightly terrifying. No, it's absolutely terrifying, yeah. Yeah. Um, Now, how well do you know Australian politics, and in particular the history of Australian politics? Are you familiar with uh, the former and now dead Queensland Premier Joe Bjelke-Peterson? No, that's one I don't know. Okay, because... in terms of media briefings, when, when he had to go and talk to the media, he used the phrase, oh, I'm off to feed the chooks. So, like, <laughs> scattering crumbs yeah. for, the, for, uh, for journalists to flock over and squawk over and so forth. So the, the, the sheer fact... And he was definitely a bit of a demagogue. Mm-hmm. Um, so the sheer fact that this, his contempt for the media was kind of uh, embodied in that phrase, I always found quite fascinating because, mm-hmm. you know, the... The relationship between politicians and the media is such an oddly symbiotic one. Mm. So to have a politician so openly contemptuous of the media was quite unusual. I find that fascinating. I'm going to have to look into that more. I've been, you know, since I've lived here, I've spent a lot of time researching and just kind of also learning through osmosis about Australian politics. Um, But I love that phrase, feeding the chooks. I think if that's what he was up to, then Sarah Huckabee Sanders is off to... uh, wring their necks because (laughs) she's not interested in feeding them. She only wants them dead and gone. Now, you mentioned that you came to comedy through improv. Talk to us about that kind of uh, path from uh, improv through to stand-up and how valuable your improv skills are for a show like this. Yeah, I, um, you know, almost more than a decade ago, I started improvising at a theatre in New York City called the Upright Citizens Brigade. Then I studied at the Second City in Chicago And it was there that I watched a lot of sketch and I learned that, you know, these performers would put on the same sketch show night after night and there would be certain segments that were improvised within it. And I watched them come alive in those moments in a way that they weren't in the scripted bits. And that's what made me realize I want to build my creative practice on always being in that moment. Anything can happen at any time and um, really sort of being ready for whatever the audience throws at me. So that kind of led to my pivot to improv. So it's the, what, the liveness, the, the nowness and the immediacy that is the real appeal. Exactly. It's, it's ephemeral. It can't be repeated. It's, it's whatever happens is between me and the people there in that room that night. And sometimes that means your hit rate is lower, but most of the time it means you're curating an experience that is unlike anything else. Comedy is also uh, a somewhat frightening art form to perform because you, you, if you don't make the audience laugh, you're not succeeding in, in your job. There's clearly then added pressure through improv, so you must rather enjoy living on a knife edge. <laughs> I guess when it comes to comedy, I do. I, I think, you know, if you're going to do something, why not do something challenging? That's what I tell myself, at least. You're also working with a director on this show, mm-hmm. uh, a director who works very much in much more scripted comedy. Mm-hmm. Talk to us about how you work with a director to hone and tighten a show like this, given how much of it is improvised. Yeah, my director is the incredible Alistair Tremblay Birchall of Mad as Hell fame and Magma and some other things. A quick shout out to him. He has a show happening uh, at Trades Hall called Alistair Tremblay Birchall No Relation, which everyone should check out. He's incredible. But, um, yeah, Alistair has an incredible 
sketch and satirical and political mind. And so we really focused on those portions. And to be honest, he kind of left the improvised portions up to me. He was like, this is your special power. This is what you're good at. I'll leave that to you. But we spent a lot of time talking about, you know, where to locate them within the show and that kind of thing. And again, uh, the fact that this is an interactive show, uh, it strikes into the kind of thing that other comedians might come along to and and willfully and happily play along with uh, (laughs) as well as audiences who like to heckle. Yeah. I hope so. I've definitely had some friends in the room throwing me some real curveball questions, and that's delightful for me. So come along, ask questions. Melissa McGlency is performing The Briefing at Campari House in Hardware Lane in Melbourne, just off Burke Street, from the 10th to the 23rd of April. Uh, Mondays through to Sundays are from 7 till 8 pm. Tickets just 18 to 25 bucks. You can book at comedyfestival.com.au or buy tickets at the door. The Melbourne International Comedy Festival on now until the 23rd of April. And yes, if you want to see Melissa's The Briefing, as I said, the 10th to the 23rd of April at Campari House, 23 to 25 Hardware Lane in Melbourne. Melissa McGlenty, thank you so much for joining us at Triple R. Thank you so much. And I just wanted to add, I got a discount code USA. If anyone would like to use that for cheaper tickets, feel free. Hope to see you there. Triple R. We've been talking about a range of art forms on the program so far today. We've talked about comic books, we've talked visual art, we've talked comedy. It's time for us to return to the conversation about visual art. I'm joined in the studio by my next guest, who is a visiting curator who's here to talk about the exhibition Okuta, which is happening at Arts House uh, at North Melbourne Town Hall. Vishal, uh, Vishal Kumaswani, welcome to Triple R. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Now... When I think of visual art exhibitions, I don't really think of placing them in a venue like the North Melbourne Town Hall. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I think that is the the kind of surprise of the of the event in some way. Um, I mean, as, as we know, North Melbourne Town Hall Arts House has has a very dedicated sort of performance um, program. They have a audience that's been built over over many decades. Um, but I think it was an, it was definitely an opportunity to kind of reiterate the focus towards the community that it is indeed um, a town hall, a public space, a civic space, and to kind of also illustrate the, what the pathway in the arts looks like, um, particularly for somebody who might just be interested in the arts, all the way up to uh, a mid-career artist kind of showing um, their works within those premises. And also interesting to use, uh, yes, what is uh, a civic space and in the past was used for uh, council meetings and um, uh, and kind of uh, ballroom dancing and, and so forth, but which is also a colonial building, uh, a very obviously colonial building given its architecture on Indigenous land. So uh, an opportunity, I would imagine, to, to, to what? Explore that tension that exists as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was, that was kind of uh, one of the starting points of my kind of curatorial inquiry um, when I was invited to come into Arts House as well, particularly as coming from um, from India, from South India, coming from a different, very specific kind of caste position where um, the kind of remnants and the effects of colony are are different, but we still kind of share them with with um, what's happening in Nam and what's happening in, in Australia today. Um, but I think it is important to also recognize that um, there are voices here that um, otherwise 
don't always inhabit this colonial building. Um, and I think my focus was a bit more towards that, um, which was kind of more similar to my own lived experiences um, and thinking about what does it mean to contend with um, a, a kind of a cultural heirloom that doesn't necessarily belong to identities like mine and folks like mine, um, uh, folks like me who, who are in Melbourne. Um, and, and what does it mean to inhabit that space and how do we then make those voices resonate outwards versus um, what otherwise might tend to become a somewhat of an echo chamber. Yeah. Now, the exhibition, uh, as I said, is titled Okuta. What does that word mean? Um, Okuta comes from uh, my language, Kannada, which is a language spoken in the state of Karnataka in South India. Um, Okuta loosely translates to alliance or gathering. Um, Kuta is usually about coming together. Okuta is the strength of coming together. Um, so it is very much about the assembly of, of these kind of very diverse um, practices, but also very different, uh, diverse kind of like geographic, social, cultural histories that are coming into the space. Now, in terms of curating the exhibition, it's interesting to me, it's subtitled an equity building curatorial project. What do we mean by equity building? Um, I, th I think from, we all, we all have different understandings coming from different post-colonies, um, about what equity looks like. I'm coming to it from a very uh, specific anti-caste framework um, in terms of where there is kind of a effort that institutions need to make um, kind of a disproportionate, um, not not advantage, but a kind of a disproportionate um, amount of labor needs to be performed on the role, on the behalf of the institution in order to even begin creating equitable surfaces upon which we can even begin to assemble artistic practices. So for me, um, the equity building is very much looking at um, whose, kind of whose voices are really heard in the space, not just from the artist, but also from the neighboring community. You know, there's a lot of um, um, centers that work with new migrants and, and English as a second language speakers in, in the neighborhood. Um, there's a lot of uh, second, third generation immigrant businesses in the neighborhood. Um, and my question was very much about how do we cater and br bring programming that, that makes these communities welcome with, with whom I might share social, cultural kind of similarities. Um, and, and how do we kind of work towards that? It's not just equity in terms of uh, the artists in the space, but the equity has to go beyond and, and actually reach the community. Is this one of the reasons why the, uh, the exhibition is accompanied by some communal feasts? Yeah, yeah. Um, the exhibition has two communal meals um, prepared by the artist Lara Kamas, who's based here locally um, from Melbourne. Um, and we're, we're working also towards talking about the politics of, of um, kind of from, from Lara's perspective, the politics of, of West Asian and Lebanese cuisine, and what does it mean to kind of contend with um, recipes and, and food as, as kind of family heirlooms and, and shared history. Um, and at the same time, the, with the ingredients, we're focusing a lot on what is the kind of hierarchy of caste that plays out with these ingredients and how do we kind of subvert that and tackle that uh, within the framework of, of the meal itself. Vishal, tell us about some of the other artists who are presenting work in the exhibition. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we have Subhash Tebe Lumbu, um, who's a Yaktung um, artist who comes from Nepal. Um, who, who's based in the UK. Uh, Subhash just had a showing at APT earlier. Um, I think it was earlier last year. 
um, was showing his work Ningwasam, which is kind of a um, almost feature length uh, kind of indigenous futurist. Um, um, it, it it is I, I guess it is a film. It's a video work, but it, it is it's definitely a film. Um, we have Eugenia, um, who's showing Shelters for Kyneton, um, a work that she she performed and um, kind of worked with um, the community center in Kyneton. We have um, Nancy Yu, who's an emerging artist coming from Sydney, um, who's talking a lot about translating um, kind of Chinese mythological tales into very intricate, very labor-heavy um, glasswork. And she's um, scheduled to do a performance on the on the opening night as well. Um, we also have Nikhil Nagraj, who's an who's a artist based in Bangalore, who's creating a custom-built 16-channel uh, spatial audio installation, um, which is, I think, one of the first of the kind that we've had an opportunity to actually bring in um, kind of references from South Indian classical music, the way in which uh, musical instruments and even frequencies and, and the kind of materials that are used in the creation of musical instruments play a role in talking about caste hierarchies, but convert, uh, kind of translated into a into an immersive spatial audio installation. And where in uh, the, the town hall will that be installed? Um, that is in Studio One. The spatial audio installation is in Studio One. We have the emerging artists um, kind of interacting with each other in Studio Two. And then in, in the main hall, we have some of the mid-career artists. We have a lot of media works in there. And we also have um, a kind of material area where we have a lot of sculptures from Fung and, and Lara as well. Um, and then we have Subhash's film in there too. One of the things that intrigues me about using uh, North Melbourne Town Hall Arts House as an exhibition venue is that if you go there to see a show, you see the foyer, you see the hallway, you see the toilets and you go into the main hall and see see the show. You don't see the rest of the building most of the time. So this is an opportunity for people to, to actually fossick around, to explore, to, to look into the corners. And to take ownership uh, or re-ownership, perhaps, uh, of what was a public space and, and still is to a degree, but is a, is a policed space in some ways. Yeah, I, th- I think that that's also kind of how we're working in terms of, like, how do we make access as free and as open as possible? And as you will see on, on the programming, every, all the programming is free. There's no tic- There are no tickets at all whatsoever, um, and also the way that the that the show is constructed is that you do get to kind of meander around within the building um, and look at spaces that and how they've been repurposed from what they were originally built for. Um, but also just in 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 this like kind of tension of of moving through a, a building that comes with this kind of weight of history, but um, is also kind of interesting architecturally. You kind of go in and you see that they were built for very different purposes. They were built to, like, kind of trap heat and things like that. So you have a lot of, like, um, kind of cosy nooks and corners in in the space um, while also contending with, like, this kind of grand architectural design. Yeah. The fact that, yeah, it it was a municipal building, so there would have been council chambers there and areas that were off-limits to the public uh, are now being opened up to the public through art, using art as both the medium and the message. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, um, and I, and I think it's it's also trying to build out an audience to kind of reiterate the fact that it is a it is a community space and a civic space, um, and, and also just kind of demonstrate like what are the ways in which you do get to access um, not only just art kind of exhibitions but also art programming, 
Um, and that's kind of reflected in the public program spread out over those two weeks. Tell us a bit about the public program. Um, for the public program, we have um, a few curatorial kind of walks through the through the space for different audiences. Um, I think we have some school children coming in. We have uh, some folks from the neighborhood com- coming in. Um, a couple of the curator, curator tours kind of end with the communal meals on both Saturdays, um, which is definitely something that people should register for as soon as it goes live because that's going to get filled up really fast. Um, and we have a panel discussion um, with some of the artists on the 13th. Uh, we have two performances by Nancy, one on the opening night and one on the Saturday, um, the 15th. Now, in terms of the kind of the geographic spread of artists you're working with. Talk to us about the the curatorial challenge of not only working out who to work with, but how to get their art here from kind of different parts of the country. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, sorry, I mean, different parts of the world, I should say. Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely, it's it has been um, a kind of a learning experience for me coming from different contexts as well. Um, I am an artist based in, artist and curator based in Bangalore, but, but I don't work a lot in the country. So the way we do things, I guess, in, in, in our own region in South Asia is, is kind of vastly different um, just in terms of even like the physical transport of artworks, which we're still kind of contending with and, and learning as we go. Um, but I think that is kind of also where it's important to have an institution and an institution with experience that, that, um, that, that, I, that I've had the opportunity to partner up with, um, where we are filling in gaps between each other, but also that I, I do work with with media arts a lot, so um, we're kind of, I guess, divided labor of, of of having the physical transport of works kind of rest on the institution because they're more experienced in that, um, and all the media works and dealing with those technicalities rest on me. Yeah, and in terms of the exhibition itself, um, how how integral is the idea of the community feast to the exhibition? Could you have the exhibition without the feast, for example, or would that almost defeat the purpose of bringing kind of these different artists, their works and their ideas together? Yeah, absolutely. I think this is kind of um, a good point for me to kind of go back and and speak about why it was titled Okuta. And coming from the community that I come from, I come from um, a Dalit background, which is otherwise... um, categorized as untouchable and lower caste in, in, in India. Um, a lot of times the gatherings in the community are ways for us to navigate and negotiate access to public spaces that we otherwise don't have. Um, and that was kind of one of the guiding uh, principles for me to think about if this is a public space and, and that this is a public space and in a way that access is restricted um, across different barriers, how do we then... Um, make it so that there isn't a transactional demand placed on the audience, the, that the audience can come in and they don't absolutely need to view the exhibition in order to access other parts of the programming. How, how does it mean that, like, because we're also dealing with various levels of literacy, both art, um, technological, um, as well as education. We can't have communities come in and have to engage with the exhibition as the primary event versus here we're looking at the exhibition is is an important event, but it is alongside the communal meals. It is alongside the public programming and that the communal meal is very much about, it is talking to a, a, um, a different tangent of the programming and it's talking very much about having open, free access to um, to nutrition. 
The exhibition Okuta is showing at Arts House, North Melbourne Town Hall, from next Tuesday, the 11th of April, through until Sunday, the 23rd of April, with the communal feasts happening on Saturday the 15th and Saturday the 23rd of April. If you go to www.artshouse.com.au, you can find out all the details and register for the feast so that you can take part in those. Uh, Akuta is curated by visiting curator Vishal Kumar Aswami. And Vishal, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting. Thanks for coming Thank in. you so much for having me. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. My final guests for the morning have joined me in the studio. Comedians Daisy Mann and Sujit uh, Kalsa are here to talk about brown women comedy, uh, presented as part of the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. Welcome to you both. Thank you. It's good to be here. Thank you. Good to have you both in. Daisy, talk to us about brown women comedy, a showcase. Sure. We came up with the show last year just as a pilot and we thought, why don't we put together all the South Asian women comedians we know? So at that time, that was about four. Um, South Asians, Indian, Pakistani, kind of that region. And why don't we put on a show and call it Brown Women Comedy? It was a pilot. We thought 20 people would show up. 160 did. It sold out. We were trying to beg the venue to add more seats. They couldn't. It was no H&S issue. Um, <laughs> so this this year we've got together six comedians and we thought, why don't we go bigger and better? We're lucky to get a little bit of funding from City of Melbourne and because of that now we've got a show where we can host a capacity of 600 people and we're like 80% sold out, so we're stoked to be bringing these comedians together. Sujin, it sounds like this is the, the classic example of if you build it, they will come, kind of to, to use a, a movie line, uh, really demonstrating not just a hunger for, for, for different voices in comedy, but demonstrating the need for a community to be able to come together and celebrate. Oh, absolutely. Like, I've been running a lot of um, – I'm from Perth. I used to live in Melbourne and um, it's good to be back. And it's just such a um, – it's Daisy's awesome work in, in kind of spreading the awareness of this issue. But also, um, you know, if you make awesome art, it doesn't – like, audiences love everything. Like, we – I feel like when it comes to programming things, there is this sort of notion sometimes I face in the arts when, oh, but, you know, how are we going to do community engagement? It's so hard. It's like, no, no, no. Audience love awesome stuff and they will come um there'll always be audiences audiences are way smarter than we give them credit for um so it's just it's just great yeah, yeah. and daisy in terms of I guess, growing the, the umbrella, as it were, kind of bringing more comedians into the fold and so forth. It sounds like uh, this is going to just going to keep building. Yeah, well, I, I think as... Well, I did a little bit of research, actually, in the entire comedy festival. I went through all of the 550-odd shows that were up there then. There were only, I think, six notes, around eight South Asian women comedians that were local acts that weren't being flown in from internationally. And of, of that includes our six. <laughs> so really without our show, there'd be like two or three. So I think there's definitely a need for it, but also there's an audience for it because there's a complete lack of. And when you bring, I guess, a lot of emerging comedians together, the audience sort of knows some someone will resonate with them. So they like going to those shows. But we're hoping next year, um, depending on how we go this year, we might take it to Sydney and Perth and other cities, fingers crossed. Yeah. Um, it also, uh, I guess, is something about the collegiate nature of the comedy scene, that you're able to work together, support one another, uh, 
maybe even learn from each other, kind of, because I know that the number of comedians I've spoken to over the years who say, oh, kind of, I watched such and such and it was like a masterclass. So being able to observe one another's styles and do yeah. you kind of watch one another oh, and take I notes? was at Sukji's house yesterday <laughs> practising my set and me, Sukji the Moose, the, one of the comedians, we were all there practising together. And it's good because, like, how else can you workshop? Like, I used to be a poet and it was such a solo sport. Comedy is pretty solo too. Like unless you can get together and like help each other out, and it's 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 the most vulnerable I've ever felt. Like I used to think ten years of spewing my guts on stage as a poet was hard, but my god, I think comedy is the hardest thing I've ever done. And without these girls, I think yeah, I wouldn't want to do it alone. Yeah, the um the. The thing that always amazes me about comedy is A, how comedians make it look effortless sometimes and B, just how much bloody hard work it actually is uh, and how draining it must be if people don't laugh. It can take months. I had no idea. It can take months to come up with a five-minute set and to revise and revise and revise, especially when you're starting in the early days. I was reading all these comedy podcasts, watching this YouTube video on how to do stand-up, and I was thinking, wow, that is not effortless. <laughs> There's a lot of effort to look effortless. Tell us uh, about your your journey into comedy. Where did it start for you, given that uh, <laughs> uh, we know that Sujit was uh, uh, performance poetry and... Uh, and yeah, well, I well, I co-produced the show last year with my co-founder. Of, so I run a not-for-profit called Australian South Asian Centre. And we've been looking for over the last two years ways to amplify South Asian women creatives, founders, young activists. So last year I put this show together and it was like a lot of work. <laughs> there's a lot of work that goes on to building a sold-out show. It doesn't sell itself. <laughs> um, there's a need for it, but to get to the audience, to let them know it's on, there's a lot of marketing. And this year I was doing all of that. And about like a month into this, I thought, you know, I'm on a sabbatical from my, my actual day job career. I've quit. And I thought, why don't I add myself to the lineup just for five minutes, see how I go. It'll be a creative challenge. So I'm not sure if I'm a stand-up comedian, but I also do have like a TikTok account, which is like, we've had like 20 odd million views and it's pretty funny, but it's in Punjabi. It's not in English. So I, I'm pretty funny in Punjabi, which is a language that's just funny when you start talking. Uh, so I'm, I'm hoping I'm going to be funny in English. We'll find out, I guess. Yeah. Um, tell us about your styles of comedy. Are we talking observational character? What's, go- what's going on? Oh, I think I'm like... Uh... It's funny, like, when I used to do poetry, people used to um, sometimes, like, uh, call me a comedian and I freaked out with that word because I thought, oh, the expectation is you're going to make them laugh. So now I'm trying to go back to what I'm comfortable with, which is storytelling, Um, so it would be observational, Um, a little bit of character, Um, and then, you know... Uh, maybe like the extra layer that Daisy and I and the other artists we bring is like sort of our, our cultural um, lens on, on situations that might be quite mundane and, and normal, um, but how does it feel to step into our shoes? So I think um, ultimately um, I think we do have a bit of like some cool messaging in our, in our storytelling as well. Yeah, Would you yeah. say so? Yeah, yeah. I'd say mine's pretty similar, observational and kind of character. Like there's bits where I play being my mum and things like that. Uh, my whole set's about sort of superstitions. So it's really observing these things I've learned growing up that are ridiculous. Like if your second toe is bigger than your first toe, you're going to control your husband or partner. <laughs> so there's all these random things I grew up with and I just thought they were really funny. So I put them together and it's a bit sarcastic, 
pretending to be my mom and things like that. How did your mum feel about that? She doesn't know. (laughs) (laughs) She doesn't come to the set. My mum is a very stern, conservative, traditional uh, woman and I don't think she'll find it very funny. (laughs) Uh, More to push against, certainly. She hates my TikTok. She's made, like, lots of fake accounts to go follow my TikTok and tell me to remove it. (laughs) (laughs) In terms of some of the other performers on the bill, talk to us about them and their styles of comedy as well. So Moose, I reckon like Moose, I mean, she's probably our biggest influencer yeah, on the on like the lineup. 400,000 followers, been on three reality TV shows in India, but she's from Australia. And she's got a massive following here yeah. as well. Um, I reckon hers is going to be probably the most vulnerable, I reckon. Um, she, we're going to see a different side to Moose that we haven't seen um, besides her online or TV presence. Um, and the other comedians, Uruvi, um, you know, very established comedian in Australia, has appeared in many, uh, wrote, written for many TV series. So um, I just went to see her show that's finished um, at the Comedy Festival. It was amazing. Um, and then we've got Amna um, Kirpa. Yeah, um, yeah they're, they're also been in the comedy circuit for, for a while now. So I reckon we're all going to bring, and also not only are we bringing different styles of comedy, I think we, we're coming from different parts of South Asia. Yeah. So um, that I think that brings in nuances. You know, we aren't all the same. We might look the same, but there's a lot of other things yeah. going on. I mean, three of us are Punjabi. But <laughs> <laughs> I'm mean, just from Pakistan. Yeah, so there's, there's a range there. Yeah. And in terms of the audience you're hoping to reach, obviously you want to speak to members of your community, but presumably it's also about kind of going, this is kind of broadly relatable comedy. You, you don't have to be kind of from, from Pakistan or Punjabi to, to be in on the joke. Yeah, no, no. I think roughly I'd say 70% of our audience is like ethnic folks, but we also have others and it resonates. The other day I did the set at Queen Victoria Women's Centre, who's like a venue partner, just for their launch party. And after my set, this like Greek women, woman came up to me and she said, I almost finished your sentence about I think it was the toes. She says, that exists in our culture. And then another Irish woman came to me and said, that also exists. And for some reason I thought the, there'd be superstitions but they'd be different. I didn't know they'd be the same. I knew about the black cat, the stairs, that kind of thing. But I didn't realise these very this weird superstitions I thought were just Indian that, that, that they're also in their culture. So well, I it resonates. It's, it's, I guess it's like making a, a film or something because uh, if you make something that tries to be broadly accessible, it becomes bland. But there's something about leaning into specificity that somehow then makes it more universal in a way. That's what I noticed. There's like this one joke I have about mother-in-laws that's very specific um, to gold, the gold that you get at a wedding and whatnot. And I said that and I just all the white people in the audience laughed and I thought they weren't going to because I, I thought they'd think, oh, whose mother-in-law does that? But they got it. <laughs> Brown Women Comedy is on as part of the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. Now, you've got two different venues, haven't you? Both yeah. Trades Hall mm-hmm. uh, in the, the Common Rooms Bar and also at the Queen Victoria Women's Centre. Yeah, there's three shows at one, three shows at the other throughout the week. Um, there's still tickets left, I think, for the weekend shows for Trades Hall at the moment. So for details, jump online, comedyfestival.com.au. Uh, running through just until this w- until the 12th, isn't and, it? Yeah, until the 12th. 6 to the 12th every day except for the 10th. And we've been announcing updates over on our social media as well, which is Australian South Asian Centre. Yeah. So uh, that means tonight's the first show. I know this, but we're so nervous. I'm feeling it. I'm feeling my like clenches in my body. Um, but I think it's 
it's always hard getting up there on the first night and then after that you start to warm up, you start yeah. to get to know the audience and you know what, the biggest reason why I signed up to this gig is I do love the audiences that Daisy brings because I'm in Perth, I'm used to talking to non-South um, Asian audiences and it's really refreshing to write a set that is for my community and it's going to be the first time I get to do that so I'm really excited. Yeah. What's the comedy scene like over in Perth? Oh, it's like pretty like, um, you know, our comedy festival, our friends season like it's massive fringe world is huge. oh it's so yeah. big and there's like it's saturated with just so much so much talent and lots comes to us um I'm also a bit scared of like I've performed in Perth a lot and it's a bit scary for a brown girl I feel like sometimes people don't know what to do with me and my hairy legs and my Indian antics um so I feel much safer in Melbourne to perform they're a really nice warm audience so um this is where I'm trialing a lot of stuff and then hopefully I'll I'll get that braveness and take it back to Perth Melbourne's a nice soft landing you know we're a woke city people (laughs) people are more accepting here I feel like as a city it's like pretty welcoming to these things it's definitely something that you know friends from overseas when they've moved here have commented on the the, the sense of community uh, is so strong in Melbourne. Yeah, I feel like Melbourne's a city with soul. I've been here for about 10 years and I think it's definitely home. It's a city that I feel like we care about people and we care about each other. It's so easy More to make Sydney. friends. It's so, and I like Daisy and I only met last year. We've known about each other for 10 years, but we actually met physically last year and we realised we've just got like parallel lives. We moved to you around the same age, around like, uh, like early 20, 20s, 21. Yeah. And we had parallel lives, you know, pretty conservative families moving out, going on adventures and things like that. Yeah. All of which is fuel for comedy. Yes. Oh, yeah. so much. Our sets are very, all of our sets are very personal. Some of the comedians, you know, are talking about their mental health, about sexuality and these things, which often conservative South Asian women don't publicly talk about. So I think one of the special things about this show is that kind of tackling taboo topics through the vehicle of comedy and thereby kind of giving our audience a permission to explore things like getting divorced, things like coming out as a lesbian. I think that's what's really special. And that's what we really try, I guess, in producing this show is to have a message that's vulnerable, that's raw, that gives other people the permission to be themselves. Brown Women Comedy on from tonight through until the 12th of April. No shows on Monday. Um, uh, 5.45pm Tuesday through to Thursday. Friday and Saturday at 6.30pm. Sunday at 5.30pm. Tickets range from 37 to 50 bucks. Bookings at comedyfestival.com.au. There are shows at Trades Hall. There are shows at the Queen Victorians Women's Centre. Jump online to the Comedy Festival website and book and you can work out specifically which show you're going to at what venue. I'm not going to give more details. I don't want to confuse you. uh, (laughs) That is confusing. Sorry. (laughs) Uh, It's always the way if there's more than one venue involved. But Brown Women Comedy on from tonight until the 12th of April. Go to comedyfestival.com.au for details. Daisy and Sujit, thank you both so much for coming in and uh, chookers for the season. Cheers. Thanks for having us. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. 